And your final is going to be uh, releasable shortly after the class on Thursday. And you'll be like the midterm, you'll have 10, approximately 10 days. I have to figure out exactly when the grades are due, but you'll have well more than a week to take it. You can take it as many times as you like. You won't get the result, unfortunately, each time, but you can possibly benefit from taking it twice or three times. Theoretically, is infinite number of times, but we all have we all have real lives, busy people. Um, and the purpose of the test is, is is a learning device, right? That's that's why I make it like this way because I, well, I mean, I, I would happy to give you a take-home essay if you prefer, but it seems like you like this approach. Um, Anyone not like this approach? I mean, it's not, it doesn't have to be this way. But I'm not sure everybody agrees with that. <laughs> All right, but anyway, it'll be exactly like the midterm. 50 questions, five questions per class. We have 10 classes since the midterm. So just what we covered in class based on the reading. You haven't done the reading, it's a little late in the game, but you know, I won't test you anything we didn't go over in class about the reading. But if you do the reading, you'll understand the lectures better, okay? As far as papers and or videos, um, they too will be due in about um, 10 days from now. In other words, seven days from next week, just because I need more time to go through those. And I'd like you know hard copy in my box, strongly preferred. If you can't do that, then email copied and pasted. No attachments. I don't want to get computer viruses. It only takes one infected attachment to ruin my day. So uh, if you do send me your paper by email, I, there's no penalty, but I will only accept it on a copy and paste inside the email, okay? Oh, wow. and, and the citation method for the paper is author and page number, because you're only using assigned reading. Let me repeat, you're only using assigned reading. You must cite anything that's not common knowledge, okay? Just like in the book. Take the, take, the, take the books as an example, you know. Not just quotations, but ideas. And just to review, um, and, and if you choose a video, you must upload it on YouTube. And if you're not going to make it public to the world and going to reduce it to 25 names, make sure my name, I guess I'm based on my email address or something. I don't know what, how it works. But the simplest way is just to upload the video onto YouTube. Let the whole world have at it. You can take it down after two weeks or so, but um, that's part of the skill I want you to develop in case you go into a job and you say, you know, I know how to make videos and I have, I've uploaded something to YouTube and you can look at it. Here it is. And that, that's so, I'm trying to get those of you who choose that option to, to put it as part of your feather in your cap or your arrow in your, what do you call it, quiver, whatever the thing you carry your arrows in. Uh, in any event, something you can put on your resume that employers can look at and say, hey, that's great. As far as the paper goes, let me review again one more time the uh, notion of the outline. I don't have, should have brought my markers, and these are possibly not good. But you see this? You know, basic outline is, for the purposes of discussion, will be, this says because. Three of those, and then a conclusion. So in a half-page outline, the heart of it are these three things. But the introduction and the conclusion have some specific requirements. The introduction requires a statement of what your question means. 
And the way you, s you answer that question of how, what your question means is by defining the two or three words in your question, depending on how long your question is, the key terms. And if you've noticed, I, I've generally rejected questions where the verb is a, a vague word like impacts. Or if it has the word impacts, you, know, you need to say in your question what kind of impact you're talking about. Okay, and then in your introduction, you want to be defining what that word you know, impacts the country negatively as a result of influenza, or whatever the case may be. So in that particular example, you define you know, the, the impacts, and you, you define influenza, the common cold, or whatever it is that you're looking at. Your because statement answers your question. So this is the heart of it. Your intellectual challenge is to think of an outline where you are answering your own question. If you put examples in Roman 2, 3, or 4 as the, as the topic sentence, you're not answering your question. Because the examples are data or uh, support arguments for the general answer to your question. See? So you, the examples would come below as a subsection within Roman number two because apples grow upwards and Roman three oranges grow downwards, you know, or because fruit or what have you. Uh, and then the example is, you know, the War of 1812 was a war that uh, engendered the United States into a military defeat with Britain. Didn't know that maybe, but and so so the examples are data for the answer to your question. Your why question is usually a qu question about politics or policy problems or some subject in this course that you have picked because you're interested in it and because you wanted to read that reading from the assigned reading very carefully because it was of interest to you. So this is an analytical paper where you are trying not to come up with a strong, passionate screed. That is, this is not an opinion piece. This is an analysis of a, re a reading assignment, essentially, and our class discussions that you can also cite if you choose to, uh, on that topic, and other concepts, skills, methods that you've learned in the course of the semester. For example, if you wrote on the chapter for Thursday on global warming, you might also refer to the chapter on globalization, you know, because our air pollution is globalized through the air and through the stratosphere, as it were. So concepts of globalization would also come in, not only in the cause, but also in terms of a possible solution. You want to think of a global governance that is a international mechanism to regulate the production of uh, greenhouse gases that are heating the world's atmosphere and causing this possible threat to the you know, world, global ecology. So no matter what your topic is, whether it's piracy or women's rights or China, I can't imagine that all your arguments that you would use would come just from one chapter. So this is also designed to get you to think in the terms of the big picture, not just what you read intensely from the chapter and the class on it, but also a clear discussion of other concepts and issues that you've learned in the course. And uh, so the first step that I encourage you to take, but I don't require, but I encourage you to take by posting it, copy and paste it on Learn which very few people have done, but it's not too late, since you have still 10 days to write this paper, if that's the option you choose, 
is to come up with a half-page outline. The first thing I'm going to look at, only after I've approved your, outline, your question, by the way, first thing I'm going to ask is, do, does your main arguments answer your own question? Now, what I'd like to teach you to do for the sake of your lifelong skills is for you to develop self-criticism. Because any of you who aspire to be any kind of management or professional in your careers are going to have to do writing. And the writing is, has a purpose. And you have to develop the ability to write something that fits the purpose or the assignment that you've been given in that writing assignment. And a five-page double-spaced paper, or a seven-page paper, or a 30-page paper, whatever you're given in future careers, still has to fit an outline. The only difference is there's a five-page paper, and you've got five sections. You start off with the assumption of one page per section. And that will rigorously force you, in an age of word processors, or Word, Microsoft Word, to write from your outline so you use your outline. Let me say that one more time. Write your paper from your outline so you will be using your outline. The tragedy I see every semester, over and over again, over and over again, someone writes an outline, writes a second draft of an outline, writes a third draft of the outline, and then they put it aside and then they just open the books and summarize what they're reading. Then you're not using your outline. And the whole point is the outline forces you to answer your own question. If you just summarize what somebody else has written, you be, may be very eloquent, you may give citations, it may be all legit in one sense, but that particular passage has a different purpose than what you, your purpose is for the research question that you've chosen. Because there's not a single research question that I'm going to prove because it doesn't exist, that will fit any one chapter. You know, because whatever why question you pick would only be one of the many questions that are answered in these chapters. So you might find part of the question answered directly in that chapter. But I also want you to both, within each section, and especially when you summarize in the conclusions, evaluate critically, and this is what we mean by critical thinking, the strengths and weaknesses of the arguments, the evidence, and the methodology of the reading that you've read. A liberal education has nothing to do with conservative versus liberal. Liberal means freedom, liberty, political freedom. So when you have a liberal education at Georgia State, we're not talking about politics. We're talking about political freedom and the ability to use your freedom to think for yourself. Whether you happen to be conservative or, or liberal politically is irrelevant. And it's basically irrelevant to this writing assignment. What's important for you is to think for yourself, am I persuaded by this argument? But first, you've got to identify what the argument is. If you just pick three arguments, you may or may not find them in the reading. And that's OK. But I want you to tell me whether your argument comes from the reading or you, it comes from you. And the way you tell me, among other things, is by citations. I've done the reading, so I have an idea where the arguments come from. But you know, if you develop a half-page outline and I approve your outline, it's all voluntary. It's only meant to help you. Use your outline. And I would recommend, after I've, I've approved the half-page outline, to expanding it to about a page or a page and a half. If you've got a good, solid page and a page and a half, you'll have no trouble writing five pages. 
And here's another thing. You don't need to fill your paper up with quotations. Just summarize the arguments of the writer. Give a citation saying this argument came from this writer. Do it from memory. You should know the reading well because you've read it once or even twice very, very carefully to write this paper. What usually happens, and the reason I think people don't use their outlines is they get down to the deadline. There's not enough time. So they, some, they, they don't read the whole chapter carefully. You read a portion that sounds relevant, and you summarize that little portion in that part of the chapter. And then whatever purpose that, that paragraph had, that's, not, that the, that's the purpose of that chapter, but not, not the question that you've been asked to write. So what you really got to do in terms of time is spend a good four hours reading one of the chapters. I think that's about how long it would take to read carefully. Some people read faster. Some people read slower. Some people could do it in two hours. I don't think anyone could probably read any of these chapters in less than two hours. And assuming you already read it for class, which may or may not be true, that would be the second time you've read it. And then you can write your outline from memory. If you need to insert a quote, go in. When you move from the half-page outline to the one-and-a-half-page outline, type out the quote. Put down the citation, the page number, write in your outline. You'll have it there when you're writing your paper. If you can do this, you'll get an A. And there's no quota. If you all, every one of you do it right, you'll all get an A. History has shown it doesn't work out that way, but you know, that's not for my not wanting you to succeed. I want you to succeed. The only way to learn how to do doing it is actually by doing it. So get started now. Okay? You've got 10 days. It's, it's not too late. First order of business, get that question approved if it's not already approved. Second order of business, do not write the outline until you've read the, the, you know, at least one chapter carefully. Okay, because this is the thought process. This is your value added. Remember I said earlier in the semester, one third research, that is reading in this case, one third planning. So you should spend a third of your total time for the pro assignment on your outline. And the last third is the writing. That's the easiest part. The writing is just doing what your outline says to do. Okay, so that's, that's the key to succeeding on this assignment. That's the key to, I believe, in succeeding in life and writing. It's not easy. It's very hard to be excellent. I'm talking about professional writing now. Uh, it's really hard to write something of value. And after all that's said and done, it's really hard to find the time to do it. But the world needs better thinkers. And the key to good writing is good thinking. And the key to good thinking is following this formula. I don't mean to sound arrogant, but I think it's a tried and true method. It may not work for every single one of you. But this is one way I can guarantee you, if you learn this method, your boss will always say to you, good job, excellent job. If you learn what I'm teaching you now, I'll be dead and gone. But 30 years from now, 40 years from now for sure, you'll say, that crazy professor, you know, I, 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 I used his method. Learn this method. You can use it the rest of your life. I mean, I didn't invent this method. This is not, I'm not taking credit for it. I'm just saying it's one way, not the only way, but I can tell you one thing. If you just wing it, unless you're a genius, and I don't know many professors that are geniuses, Unless you're a genius, it's not going to be good. 
And not only that, the only other way to do it is just to rewrite it 30 times, bugging your boss each time with a lousy piece of work until it finally gets done right. Then your boss gets really aggravated. Most bosses want, want a perfect first draft the first time you hand it in, or nearly perfect. What a boss doesn't want, want ever have to do is say, start over. I didn't ask you that research question. I asked you this research question. So get this half-page outline done right. And in the future, go to your boss and say, here's my half-page outline. It's the question. Am I on the right track? That's fine, because that only takes your boss a very short time to read half a page. Right? The boss will be able to say, yeah, that's it. Perfect. Go to it. Or the boss will say, no, no, that's not the question. Far better to spend two hours at getting a half-page outline wrong than to spend two work days and handing in a five-page paper that's useless. Okay? Now, if you're all going to be famous actors and actresses, I suppose you won't need to know this skill, but most of us don't have glamour jobs. So this is, this is a really good skill to get out of your college education. Questions, comments? Yeah. In the event that you don't fully have a grasp on the topic, can you not like, seek out outside sources such as no, The problem is not sources. You got plenty of material here. I don't want you, you will, I don't know what year you are in school here, but you'll have many opportunities at Georgia State to get, certainly by senior year, in 4,000 level courses to write research papers. And you'll go over, if you're a political science major, you go see Mary Jo DeJoyce, the research librarian for political science. And you'll learn all about databases and all that stuff. I don't want you to do that in this. You, you need to learn this skill first. Right, I mean, I just want to make sure because I've already pretty much finished mine, um, but I, I did a lot of reading just to get a grasp on the background of the situation. But I told you not to do that. Well, I mean, I didn't use any idea, like, I just had but, but you haven't even given me your outline yet. Um, well, I mean, I'm not gonna, I mean, I just, I wanted to get started, so I did. I just Why didn't you give me your outline? Because I just told you I'm gonna I don't, I just, so I was making sure that's not something you want I'm not going to penalize you for it. I'm just saying that I had said earlier in the semester, please do a half-page outline and you learn. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the best. I mean, it's not like, okay, I already turned it in. I just have started reading. I read, I read the chapter in depth a few times, and I just wanted to get a fuller grasp on it, so I don't feel like I don't I like to be, whenever I write, because I'm, I'm a journalism major, I like to know, like, 80% of the background. The problem is this is not a descriptive paper. This is an analytical paper. That the purpose is not who, what, where, when, why, or even, uh, sorry, who, what, when, where, or how. It's only a why question. Therefore, it's cause and effect. Because has the root word cause in it. So this is not an information-rich assignment. I'm not saying you, did, you suffered anything for doing this, for doing all that reading. But this is a task of trying to figure out to do something you don't do in journalism. Yeah. In journalism, you're not supposed to typically answer the why question in a news article. Oh, yeah, I know. And I don't like that aspect of journalism. Just writing in general. But yeah, I understand that. It's, it is very analytical. I mean, I'm going to obviously be like, I'm not done one assignment. I just want to get started. Okay, I, I'm sorry if I sound like a sourpuss. I hope not. Um, I think maybe it'll help you, you know, figure out the three or four main reasons. In any event, that's how I want you to structure your paper, with three or four main reasons to, to answer your why question. And if you have any questions, come see me. Anybody else?
Yeah. Um, in the book, they cite other uh, readings. If yeah. You have access All you have to do is cite the book. You don't have to cite the reading in the book. Just, just if you want to, you can say Jones, as cited by Greenblatt in today's article on, on rewriting history. But I, that's unnecessary. Just say Greenblatt, page 32. You can quote it and say, quote it in Greenblatt, page 32. Again, just cite the author of the article in the page number in the paper. Just parentheses right after the idea, statistic, or quote that you're using. Any other questions? Anyone doing a video? We originally had five or six people. Well, I guess they're all absent today. Uh, all right, today, rewriting history. This is a very important subject. Um, I don't know if any of you saw this article in the AJC on April 13th about the sesquicentennial, 150th anniversary of the start of the Civil War. Uh, and the, the op-eds raised the very same question raised in the chapter about how the United States should look at itself. And in this particular article, Atlanta should look at itself in terms of its own history in the Civil War. What is our narrative? What is our discourse? The idea here is that there is a tension, maybe it's a dilemma, uh, between uh, trying to tell the truth and trying to maintain unity. Why is unity important? Because it's tied intimately with what the chapter says about nationhood. Can anyone tell me what the author says about a nation? Anybody? It says that a nation, uh, one of the uh, figures quoted talks about how we live in this age of remembering. The nation consists of a collective identity, and a large part of that identity is, is how we construe our construct. Past. That's correct. That's absolutely right. Uh, the idea here is that a lot of leaders feel insecure. They need a mobilized population to support their policies. They absolutely need a mobilized population when nations go to war. In fact, at least in European history, uh, and to some extent in other parts of the world, nation making is war making. And states make war. Therefore, states make nations. The idea of states making nations comes from the need for soldiers to support the war off, to risk and lose, if necessary, their lives on behalf of the nation. Well, most people wouldn't do that, except in the situation of slavery, where they don't have an option other than suicide. So Roman, Rome conquered peoples, and the, the slaves who were defeated became slaves and, and war fighters. Uh, everybody else growing up in a particular country was asked to fight on behalf of the feudal lord during feudalism. And the deal there was, according to Hobbes, protection in return for service. You were a serf, you were tied to the land, you had no prospects other than to be a serf or a landless tenant. You didn't own your land, you gave a fraction, a half, a third, two thirds of your agricultural output to the landlord. And in peacetime, you were a farmer. And you had a life. Maybe it was short, British, nasty, uh, as Hobbes wrote, but it, you had a life. And if called upon to serve in the military, you served in the military, and you often died in big numbers. And you had no choice in the matter. You could commit suicide. You were one step above a slave, but only one step. 
Then in modern industrial society, the society were, that wanted to industrialize needed factory workers and increasingly better educated workers. And these are people who can think for themselves and think, hey, I don't have to do this. You're not tied to the land anymore. You live in a city. They can try to arrest you, kidnap you, if you want to use the word, conscript you, draft you, force you to fight. But a lot of people run away. In Russia, which is more like the way these nations were in the last couple hundred years, something like 90% of the people drafted to fight in Chechnya disappear for a few years while they go, not to be seen again or found again very easily. Because they don't want to go to Chechnya and die. They have, still have a conscript army because they still have the tradition of cannon fodder, basically using peasants to die. Now, in theologically legitimated empires in the history of Europe, the king was God's representative. And so you fought for the, the religious ideals of, that, you, that you held dear. And that was another motivating factor. But by the time of industrialization, the religious appeal was limited to the extent that the enlightenment, critical thinking, science and technology led many people to think that God didn't require you to die for some king. Because a lot of people suddenly didn't believe that the king was God's appointee. And what the society tried to do was to get people to form a kind of modern group, highly disciplined, educated enough, particularly in the national language. So most of these countries had a major project of unifying the country by language. Indeed, the only major ethnic conflict that I know of offhand in the world where the two sides are divided not on language is Northern Ireland, where both sides have been forced to learn English by British colonialism. Because in Ireland, they used to speak Gaelic or Irish. Both the Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland the Catholics who were converted prior to British colonialism largely, and the Protestants who came over as Scottish colonizers, who were Presbyterians for the most part, uh, were divided by religion. Almost all the other parts of the world where you don't have this kind of colonial-induced ethnic conflict, so South Africa would be another one, but there they speak different language and have a different religion. But typically, the ethnic conflict is just two groups. They speak different language, and that's why they're divided, and their whole subculture is divided. So Britain eliminated almost all Welsh, and almost all Irish, and almost all Celtic, and replaced it with English. France forcibly, through two centuries, tra transformed peasants into Frenchmen. Germany, which only became a country in 1870, didn't go about eliminating all the other Germans until 130, 141 years ago. And everyone after World War II learned high German. I'm not sure what part of Germany they spoke that in. And the other regional dialects are dying off, but they, they're still spoken locally. And certainly, the German in Austria and the Germany, Germans spoken in Switzerland are quite different from the Germans spoken high German. Germany, and there were other German dialects of German communities all throughout Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, this transformation process, this modernization process, 
uh, was started with unified language, but also tried to create a myth of a unified country. And this myth doesn't mean Greek mythology. Myths is not the same thing as mythology. Some myths can be true, some myths can be false, some can be a combination of truth and falsehood. But these are attempts, usually by the state, that is the government, to get everybody to think along the same lines so we are a unified people. So what are the unifying myths of the United States? Well, we had unifying myths uh, encapsulated, according to Lincoln, in a second inaugural address based on the Declaration of Independence. Up to 1864, it wasn't the Declaration of Independence that tended to unify the country. It had more to do, perhaps, with the US Constitution. But life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness became a rallying cry after 1864. Um, the Declaration of Independence, incidentally, you know, first draft was going to blame King George III for slavery, but they took that part out in part because not only the southern states, but a lot of the northern signers of the Declaration of Independence at that time also owned slaves. Um, but we have contested histories. There is public history, and there's the history in academia or in history books. And we have no official censorship, so our history books have debates and, and most of the known facts and as well as many errors and, and, and myths as well. But in our public discussion of history, represented in part by what is put in high school history books, in part by what holidays we celebrate, in part by uh, the things that people pass on to their children and then their families and friends about how they remember history or if they even bother to remember history, uh, the issues that you think important represent both conscious and subconscious processes that reflect narratives that are common in the culture that you are part of. I don't know if all of you grew up in America, but at least all of you live here now. And so in varying degrees, you have been exposed to both common and different narratives, discourses, and myths about America. Now, when I said, you know, myth, one of our founding myths was that we were all created equal because that was stated in the Declaration of Independence. And it was a myth that was obviously not true from any kind of viewpoint outside, I guess, beliefs in the afterlife because we had slavery, because women couldn't vote, because we had, um, and blacks obviously couldn't vote, and property owners were the only white male property owners, were the only people who could vote, depending on the particular rule in each state, in the early decades of American history. We were trying to develop a common country because, like all countries, the governors wanted to find some reason for uh, the people to think that they had legitimacy to govern. And the country would ask from time to time the population as a minimum to pay taxes, especially in the history of these countries. The big tax burdens in the early days were war fighting. Now we worry about Medicare and how it's not going to be there to pay for anything by the time you guys are old. And that's something you're going to have to live with, probably, because until we get our medical costs under control, our prices are ri rising rapidly. And as we live longer, 
It becomes easier to keep people alive, but at a very great expense, particularly in the last months and years of life, where we used to die, now we're alive, and so, but you're alive, but you need all these people to keep you going. Um, but whether it's to pay taxes, or especially to fight wars, we not only want to honor what deserves to be honored, the controversy comes when the government asks us to honor what we may not feel deserves honor. Or we have a different sense of what is really important in history. You may think the most important thing in American history was that veterans, I say you, meaning maybe somebody in this room, you know, veterans fought the great war against Hitler and the Japanese Empire and came back and built a great country after World War II. Someone else may think the most important thing in American history is that a third of African slaves died on the trip over. Somebody else may think the most important thing in American history was that the South was beaten up by the North and their ancestors were all killed just because they wanted to have states' rights. Somebody else may think that the most important thing in American history is that in the last 20 years we've gotten involved in two wars and we need to, to, to honor those veterans. Somebody else may say the most important thing in the last 20 years is we got involved in two wars. What a waste. And this only begins to introduce some of the conflicts about contested history. It's not just about facts. It's also about which facts do you emphasize. Now, in the history books, these things are debated. But in our public life, should we even talk about these things? Should we all spend our time being grateful that we live in a quote unquote free country and let's put our energy in defending this country? Or should we put our energy into debating what is the truth and try to solve the problems of the present and future by not making the same mistakes we made in the past? These are all open questions. And a lot of these debates reflect our values. For example, I'm saying this as an impression, and I'm not absolutely convinced it's correct. But I have the sense that Republicans think the United States is an exceptional country, and that's a good thing. And to some extent, Democrats think the United States is an exceptional country, but there are a lot of bad things in the way the United States is exceptional. If it's not Republicans and Democrats, we can just say there are some people who tend to emphasize the positive in American history and also have a different set of criteria of what is positive. And there are other people who tend to say that no news is good news, that news and history is mostly about bad things. And the reason we have these things is because history repeats itself because we don't address ourselves to solving the problems now. In fact, it's the very denial that these are problems in the first place that make these problems worse in the future. Um, a lot of it has to do with, I don't know, inherited temperament. You know, some people are born kind of active, others are born kind of passive. Some people are born optimists, some are born pessimists, some are loners, others are joiners. Some are individualist thinkers and joiners and loners all at once. I mean, there's a whole gamut of different temperaments out there, and depending which psychologist or doctor you ask, there are six or eight or 12 inherited temperaments. On top of that, you've got behavior. Behavior is learned, whereas temperament is inherited. So learned behavior, in part, is heavily influenced by culture, not only culture and society and family and schools and homes and churches, 
but also political culture, which is the socialization about values learned in school also, but also on TV, partly on Facebook, and so forth. The point of this is that um, countries do a lot of bad things. And this, this chapter is mostly about atrocities and the statement that most countries do commit atrocities and tend to hide them. But something important has happened in the last 25 years. What is that? Who's read the chapter? Yeah. Started to be, I guess, I don't know if repentant is the right word, but they started to Well, I don't know if that may be a consequence of a new phenomenon, but what is the new phenomenon? It's true that penitence is really important for reconciliation. The Catholic Church requires, I believe, penitence for forgiveness. Um, but what, what, what is the specific public policy instrument that has emerged in the last 25 years? Well, truth commissions. Sometimes there's reconciliation requirements attached. And what are those? No, the model was Argentina. South Africa was the model for truth and reconciliation. But truth commission reports started in 1985. Condadep in Argentina was an accounting for the dirty war that killed. They named 10,000, almost 10,000 innocent, mostly innocent people. They certainly were all innocent of extrajudicial Extra, uh, uh, execution. Some of them may have been guilty of some crimes, but none were given due process. All were executed after being interrogated and tortured. Um, Chile had a, also had a Nunca Mas, Never Again report. Uh, by the early 1990s, South Africa added um, reconciliation with amnesty for truth-telling because the big problem of transitional justice after conflicts end is what to do with the torturer. The torturer's problem is the fact that the torturer is probably still there. A, won't end the war, and B, will cause all kinds of trouble even if the war has been ended. If you threaten the torturer, uh, certainly if you f with punishment and prosecution, and possibly even just with truth reports. El Salvador had truth commission and purging. So as part of the peace process between the FMLN guerrillas and the government, it was mandated that any major extrajudicial executioners or torturers would be prohibited from serving in the military or any other public function if they were named in the report, which was actually conducted by the United Nations, headed by an American citizen, Thomas Bergenthal. In South Africa, they said, if you testified publicly as to your crimes to uphold the apartheid system by torturing, murdering, or other violent human rights violations against anyone extrajudicially, that is extra-legally, illegally, uh, you will get an amnesty on, on an ad hoc basis after we are convinced you've told us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, these truth commissions are not panaceas but they have been regarded as important for a number of reasons. First, it has a tendency to change the national narrative. Not completely. There are always groups defending the press, saying Pinochet saved our country from communism, the Argentine junta saved us from chaos, Marxist Montenegro guerrillas, or what have you. 
Um, the apartheid regime had a harder time, given the international views that apartheid was an international crime and had no justification whatsoever. And the myth of the white tribe, the African ethnic group, descended from the Dutch colonizers of South Africa, requiring uh, a state of apartheid was debunked by the fact that anyone can live in a multicultural society and choose not to assimilate and still maintain your ethnic identity and even your economic privileges um, without having to create uh, official uh, Jim Crow type system with citizens and non-citizens or second or third class citizens with past laws, tribal homelands, uh, and race separation. Uh, you know, in this classroom, we are mixed races. We may or may not live together. We may or may not be friends with each other. But anyone can sit at the same restaurant as anyone else, assuming you're going to pay the bill. Uh, economic power is, you could call it a kind of apartheid if you want, or you can say it's a class system. Uh, but that's, that problem has not been solved in the United States or South Africa. But uh, the civil rights legislation enforcing the Equal Protection Clause was designed to say that in the American model, which is not a multicultural model, everyone is an American citizen. The myths of the United States, though, in terms of our public history, is not as divided as a lot of countries in the world. But it's increasingly divided. In many parts of the world, if you speak a different language from another group and their ancestors killed yours 400 years ago, you hold a grudge now. Because you grew up hating those people. They hate you. If not hate, at least you know, you're a little bit distrustworthy of them because they don't speak the same language and you don't speak theirs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in the United States, we have not come to terms with our past by certain measures. First of all, public history is quite ignorant. But I would say that's a fair statement for most countries. That is, the history in the history books and the history that's repeated in national narratives and discourses are quite different. And a lot of Americans don't know their own history particularly well. For example, until I read this article, I didn't know that in 1860, the plurality of Atlantans voted for the candidates who supported the Union, and not the can candidates who were in favor of a confederacy. It wasn't a majority, which means there were probably some candidates that were on neither side of that issue, or some candidates who had a third issue. I'm not exactly sure what. Nor did I know until reading this article that while Sherman burned Atlanta and destroyed the railroads and everything else, the Confederacy had attacked the railroads first, because they figured the unions would come down as well. I don't know how significant are these things, but in other words, even someone like myself who knows a little bit about history doesn't know a lot of history, because who can know everything? No one. But Americans don't know a lot of things. Um, and I won't embarrass you by asking you, can you beat a sixth grader or whatever that TV show is? Can you beat a third grader? The third grader always beats the adult? Yeah. Is that what always happens? Lots of times. That's because the fifth grader just had it in school, right? Mm -hmm. Where they take the brightest fifth grader and the dumbest adult, and the adult loves the attention, and the adult gets paid to do it. Or maybe not. I don't really know. 
Um, that's, what's that other thing? Who wants to be a millionaire? Is that the movie? Indian movie? What's it called? Slum Dog Millionaire. Who wants to be a millionaire? I remember back when, uh, back in the U.S. Remember I was in a bookstore and I just happened to pick up a book and there was a book on, about, a history book about the Boxer Rebellion in China. And I opened it up and there was a section of photographs and there was a picture of the U.S. 1st Infantry camped in the Forbidden City. Which is Tiananmen Square? Well, right. It was a, this, this complex that was sort of sacred to Chinese <laughs> culture. And what struck me about that is I had no idea. I, you know, I'd never been taught. I didn't have any show, idea. U.S. involvement in history. But, but it, it seemed certain to me that probably the average Chinese citizen would know. Put right. it down to their head. Right, exactly. And so that that was a sort of watershed moment for me in terms of how different cultures take historical events and emphasize them differently and interpret them um, in order to... The same um, events or different events. Right, exactly. In order to understand different events or that omit you want them completely. You know. um, well, you teach history, right? No, I, I, I just teach, uh, I teach mostly art. Oh, but, uh, I was going to ask you what the textbooks say these days. No, but I think the textbooks are, you know, high school textbooks. Nobody are, reads them anyway, so it doesn't right, matter. Right, right. They're not too bad, but, but right. Uh, but um, Is it true nobody reads them, these kids? You know, you have your, typically in any high school, you have your sort of honors and gifted classes, and that's where. But they don't even read them. They just sit well, and take no, notes. They, 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 they are, uh, let's just say the expectations are, are much higher. Students. But do they actually they read them? And they, yeah, they, they tend to meet those expectations a lot more commonly than but the student body at large. You're right. Very little uh, real. Even in Gwinnett. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, but at any rate, I, th I think a good measure of that sort of mythology is, is how history is taught at the secondary level, for sure. Because it's sort of this collective sort of conditioning. This is what our core values It certainly are. is what people who study historical narratives look at sure. because they do represent what educators think ought to be the unifying themes and to some extent of course you have extravagant debates Texas always seems to come up but at least right, it's not right. Georgia you know whether it's evolution or whether it's America was founded as a Christian nation which it wasn't right. um, you know, do you emphasize, how much, often it's not the facts, it's emphasis, right? If you spend a day on something, which is basically 45 minutes, I don't know, how long is a class period? About, about 50 minutes, right? 50 minutes on something. The kids have a tension span of 10 minutes. You spend a whole day on one subject, by the next half hour, they've forgotten what they were just told, and it's had no impact. Um, I do think it's cumulative, like, you know, if you hear it six times over the course of 12 years, it sinks in at one point, or you watch it on TV at some point, it sinks in, or what have you. Uh, but, you know, generally there's this sense that America is a good country, we are maybe even a great country. But it's not thought about systematically. It's not really, why should anyone, average person, debate how good a country the United States is? You know, this is where you live. 
You if you're well off enough, you feel lucky you're not starving. You may have problems in your life, so you're probably more worried about those. Uh, and the fact that you're not starving is a good thing. But if you're a leader of a country, you say, I want my country to like me. I want to support our policies. And if I have got to go to war, I've got to rely on these people to obey orders to go into battle and fight to the death. And especially in war, these myths are created. So war is the issue where myth-making is greatest. And the first myth that you typically get is, we were the good guys, they were the bad guys, they did everything wrong, we did nothing wrong, um, and we ought to get even in the future. And maybe in the 20th century we've learned that wanting to get even just leads to more war, and that's a bad idea. But the teaching of war historically has been one of, this is where we came together as a people, this is where we honor our troops, Support our troops, right? First, practically the first bumper sticker I saw after the Iraq invasion. The very moment when things looked bad. Um, and I don't know a single America, American who's not feel anything but honor for the troops in the sense that they're serving, they're risking their life. Not everybody wants to do it, and your motives are probably good, honorable motives. Obviously, there's going to be the odd person, you know, who's a psychopath who wants to do it because they want to kill. And you know, most people don't have any particular, you know, they're, they're a little bit, they have good motives, but, you know, maybe their life is a little messed up, but the army straightens them out. And everybody has a different set of combination of motives. And that, that's not even, you know, they deserve honor, right? right? But the people who sent them there may not deserve honor. But the tendency is to say, the patriotic duty is to say, they should be honored too. Because this is our country, and our country, united we stand, divided we fall. So we can't debate what academic history debates, because it doesn't matter what academic history, that's just in books, and nobody pays attention, and they all have their arguments, and they disagree with each other, and, and history keeps getting rewritten, initially by the victors and then rewritten by historians depending on their bias and whatever new archives they come up with. The argument is that the new institution is the Truth Commission and the Truth Commission with or without amnesty um, and with or without a reconciliation process of amnesty in return for testimony is that this is a good new compromise because in the past the war was over if we won, we wrote history, and we, made, we did the prosecuting, if there was any prosecution. And until they defeated us, our version was the official story. And until you overthrow us from power, we control the mass media, we control censorship, and so forth. Now what's curious is, in the United States, but also in authoritarian regimes, a lot of these historical facts about atrocities are known, but no one does anything about them. You know, in Argentina, people knew that people were getting murdered. They didn't know how many. Uh, maybe they said they deserved it, or they, if they weren't doing something wrong, that wouldn't happen to them. But then they would meet somebody who they knew, and their son and daughter was kidnapped or murdered, disappeared without acknowledgment. And then they started to think, is this really right? Is this really fair? 
And in our own recent history, there have been lots of major problems, either acts of commission, acts of omission, or acts of collaboration where we encouraged or at least turned a deaf ear or a blind eye to foreign aid recipients that we knew exactly what they were up to. Um, I can mention a few of these facts, but you know they're probably well known to you. In terms of direct atrocities, and you can disagree with me, and that's part of being American is disagreeing with your professor, but we had the second atomic bomb. You know, even the first atomic bomb on innocent people could have been dropped offshore. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis that came this close to nuclear war because Castro wanted to go ahead and only Khrushchev saved us when we were fighting for the right for Russia not to be able to do what we already had claimed for ourselves. We had the Vietnam War. We killed a million Vietnamese, or at least a million Indochinese, generally between Cambodia and Laos as well, for a war that we should have recognized pretty early was not going to be won. Blame was shared with the North Vietnamese and others in that one. Uh, we had um, Reagan was complicit in the genocide in Guatemala. 300,000 Mayan Indians. He encouraged Rios Montt, the dictator, in his mass murdering as part of a counterinsurgency. We had Bush legalizing torture. We had Bush two wars of choice where arguably the minimalist good might have been, goal was justified, per certainly getting rid of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and maybe getting rid of Saddam, but we also wanted to create a world model of democracy in both when neither was plausible. And we're still there. Uh, Obama has upped the ante in Afghanistan, and so Obama is probably unlikely to be able to win in Afghanistan. It will be interesting to see whether he really will pull out this summer and implicitly acknowledge defeat or persist in trying to save face and keep on sending more troops to die for a goal that is probably impossible, which is to create a modern society from a society that's mostly in the hinterlands and the mountains and very, very heterogeneous and, and never been at peace for the last 30 years. Clinton also, acts of omission, two genocides on his watch and a third almost, Rwanda, Bosnia, and Kosovo, and so forth. Now, I'm not saying these mean the United States is a bad country or even the United States is not a great country, but I am saying that this is not part of our national narrative. Probably none of you have ever even heard of anyone mention about Reagan and Guatemala, right? Yes, no, maybe? You heard of it? Well, you're showing my age. Our age. <laughs> I got a few on you. Yes, you do. Um, so, you know, a lot of things that, you know, atrocities are, you think atrocities ought to be things that be part of our education, right? Anyone think that? Or should we all, or maybe not? I mean, shouldn't, united we stand, divided we fall, you bring up atrocities, you're dividing us. Don't you want to honor our troops? Don't you know that Reagan is our greatest president? <laughs> a lot of people think that. How much unity do we need against a common enemy? See, I think the rub is it's like the war issue centuries ago. If we face terrorists, a lot of people are not going to want to hear much about the Guatemalan genocide. 
they don't want to hear about torture and interrogations. When we we got a threat now. The Israelis face an existential threat of suicidal bombers. They torture. They don't like to be reminded of that, but they feel like it's necessary. It probably isn't necessary, but they think it is. Why? Because when you're facing big threats, you're very risk averse. You're very risk averse. So you do things that are not in your self-interest. Because probably you get more disinformation from torture than you get useful information. And a lot of the useful information can, can be combined through traditional criminal justice interrogation, which is friendly. Or at least, sometimes it's deceptive, but it's not brutal and violent and psychological. No stress positions, no solitary confinement, no rock music, no 24-7 light in your room, no sleeping naked, all these things that don't leave any marks, they're clean torture, they drive you crazy. Some people, you know, it's being put in a jail cell for one night could drive you crazy, give you nightmares for a long time. Didn't somebody in this class say they saw someone get beaten up in a jail cell two nights ago? They said their brother saw it. Oh, his brother. Yeah, her brother. I don't, I don't remember what young lady it was. Come on, sit there. Okay, so she said, you know, her brother, I don't know if she said he had nightmares, but he didn't sleep that night. And so, you know, a lot of terrible things that can happen to you that some people think without any real evidence that we need to do these things. For example, um, do we need now to keep fighting in Afghanistan? It's not a subject anyone's particularly debating, right? I mean, yes, they debated on Capitol Hill, kinda, but not really. The debate is about do we spend more money or don't spend more money. But has anyone asked the question, do we need to be fighting in Afghanistan? I'm not telling you what to think. I'm just saying, should we, shouldn't we be discussing these things, debating them? One of the reasons we don't debate them is that our public history is really managed by a, a, a complex process that we don't understand that's half subconscious, half conscious, and the conscious part is manipulated by those who have an interest that is a dog in the fight. And among the groups that have the biggest dog in the fight is the state itself. When the state wants to fight, they protect their interest in saying the fight is a just cause. When the state decides it doesn't want to fight, it's ready to go. Yeah. Absolutely. Forming people's mindsets that don't take the time to do their own research. And my my last comment, hopefully. I but how do you do your own research? Well, I mean, we have so much of uh, information at a avail to us, and you can do your own research. But what's good some, information? Well, you have to. Follow your heart, you know, and decide not what's your brain. real and not your brain. You have to really take not your, your brain. Set your, well, you have to set your personal opinion aside and deal with the facts of anything. That's like you all know my opinion about war, and it's not the war itself, it's the casualties of war. And from having friends that have been paramedics, I've worked in the fire department, from being from Illinois and going from the suburbs to um, Walter Reed Hospital and seeing how these individuals are soldiers are being brought in 
after between um, one and five in the morning because they don't want you guys, the general public, to see that they're coming in mutilated, hanging on a thread, you know, so those types of One to of five things. in the morning in Illinois? Yeah. That's what they, they do a lot. They bring a lot of I thought Walter in. Reed was in Washington. Is there another one there? Well, I've got my, another, it's another hospital. I'm sorry. That's no, okay. Even there, I mean, I'm, even there, I mean, it's just an atrocity to see people coming in and they're all bandaged, bandaged up or they're, and, you know, they're, they're mutilated pretty much. Like the gentleman that was just recognized on the news last week that lost one part of his arm, his entire torso from his waist down. Well, unless it affects you directly or someone in your family, you say, let's fight, let's go to war. But the casualties of war, that needs to be discussed and needs to be publicized. Like, to me, in my opinion, like they did in Vietnam, and, and uh, maybe both countries will have a reality check. Yeah, I mean, both countries have interests that keep the wars going. In, in Afghanistan, a lot of it is heroin and other kinds of trafficking where war allows them to monopolize rackets, just like organized crime uses violence. Yeah. Um, like you said, there's not really a debate in, in the open about it, but I mean, one thing I, I don't understand is, is America really safer with our forces in Afghanistan? And like you said, why are we really there? Are we there to stop the heroin trade? Are we there to spur democracy? Are we there to seek out terrorists, you know, it's, it just seems very unclear to me since we've been there, you know, what our actual purpose is. And last time I checked, when you go into war, you go in with a goal in mind that you want to accomplish. Well, know? they had initially the goal of getting rid of Al-Qaeda, but then they decided we're going to make Afghanistan into a democracy. And then under Obama, General Petraeus said, we're going to embed the troops in the local communities and we're going to get them to love us. And it kind of worked in Iraq. The, the war, if you read the art of war, you know, Sun Tzu says the, the greatest general subdues his enemy without going to battle. Mm -hmm. So war is not always the answer. You know, they teach that in military school. But, you know, taught you that? No, I, no, I just read that definition of art of war. But um, it, I, I don't, I think war should be avoided, but unfortunately it is a capitalistic society and destruction means a lot of money to be made for people on the back end, unfortunately. So in terms of the quality of public debate, why is it that the United States, for example, has not had a commission? Let's not call it a truth commission, because that sort of implies third world country. And we don't like third world country stuff. So why haven't we had a commission, let's say, to look at the torture scandal in the Bush administration? After all, these were clear crimes under US law. And why there hasn't been an evaluation of any benefits that might have accrued. If it really is, does it work? Is it, is it clear that, there's a, that it works? Or are they deliberately not studying it because they don't want people to know that it doesn't work? They, they could be deliberately not studying it so that in future it remains an option. Why not? Why wouldn't they want to know whether it works or not? If it doesn't work, it's not in our interest to use it. They don't want to bring it out and have it roundly condemned in a public fashion by the whole country. They want to keep it murky. They want to obfuscate. But why don't they want to know the truth? If it, if it doesn't work, why should well, they use because it? Because they probably already decided for 
And how do they do that? Why do they do that? Um, I don't think conclusions like that are always perfectly rational. In fact, I think people are often driven by motives that are no noble in the sense that they feel like these means are justified by ends that are so critical, the stakes are so high, that uh, they feel it's necessary, but it's necessary and the public won't approve of it. That's a very good point. Is that, is that a typical scenario? Yeah, that's a typical scenario that a lot of military people use. And they try to equate that with we're sitting in a room in some you know federal facility or something, and like you say, torture this guy, keep the lights on, do whatever. And But unfortunately, in that scenario, like you said, you get disseminated wrong information a lot of times. and Because they don't even know the information exactly. to begin with. They just with. want you to stop. So it's a debate with the, the people who are for it say, we get answers, we get them fast, and we need to do that. Whereas, Whereas now in, in modern warfare with satellites, you already know where your enemies are, so you don't have to torture them. Exactly. That's the, 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 my the point, mentality lives on. And I agree with, with that, that if you get down to the point where you have to torture this individual to get information, then you've made so many mistakes in your intelligence leading up to that point that you already up shit's creek, you know, excuse my language. But what creep? Yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't have to get to the point of torturing the guy. You should have counterintelligence, like you said. We have the technology. Yeah, what if you don't? Old school spy. So torture is a symptom of failed intelligence. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what if we don't have intelligence? I mean, we're facing an Islamic enemy in the United States where we don't speak their language. We can't infiltrate because we don't, we're not good at pretending to be Al-Qaeda types. Well, that's unfortunate for us, and we need to work on that level of Yeah, but there's certain, I mean, you can't take a materialistic consumer society like America and try to pretend to be part of these groups that hate materialism. Absolutely not. I mean, it's difficult, but I'm pretty sure some of these other nations have spies in our ranks that are acting like we are, and they have pretty, plenty of intelligence. Well, I, probably it's easier to go one way than the other, I would sure. think. For one thing, if you're speaking English with a foreign language, you don't stand out in the United States because there are lots of people who speak English with a foreign language. But if you speak Arabic with an English accent and you're trying to pretend to be Al-Qaeda, it's going to be hard to pull it off. Right. But that's why you got to go to Afghanistan. But you'll always have the accent. What you have to do is you have to find natives. That's what I'm saying. you gotta go to you got to go to these countries and sympathize with the locals. And get How do you know it's not going to be a double? You don't. But it's worth the risk. Yeah, but one double, they, that's what they did, and the CIA got, they had a bomb go off, and they killed uh, all kinds of people. This doctor, I think, from Jordan, played a double to the United States, pretended to be on our side when he was actually on Al-Qaeda's side, and he blew himself up and killed 30 CIA agents in, in Kabul, I believe. But from my understanding, you know, the intelligence, U.S. intelligence is very lacking, for example, with 9-11, when they got whatever um, 
Well, the guy that came to our class at the beginning of the semester, Jonathan Fine, I never heard this anywhere else. You may recall, and you can listen to it on the podcast, he said on 9-12, they, they, they said the bride was yeah. something. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like we, 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 have, we got a dossier from Interpol or from some agency in, in uh, Europe that got sent over before 9-11. Yeah. And it was on somebody's desk, and it never got translated. It was in French. It's like, you don't have any French translators on hand to read Just use Google documents? Translate. You know what I mean? So, I mean... It's a breakdown in the system. So By the way, that's an amazing feature. Google Chrome, you just go to Google Chrome, you find a foreign language place, you click translate, the entire thing is translated. And see, uh, and on a, to, to, to go on another angle, I think a lot of that boils down to America is such a tunnel vision society where you go outside of the country and you go many places, people are speaking many different languages, interacting. Here, people are like, no, you come to America, you gotta learn English. And, you know, people are Isn't that what made us great? No, absolutely not. I don't think so. But I think that's don't you think we're the best country? Absolutely not. <laughs> that's the essence of our discussion today, because it's all about the degree to which we find it necessary to construct an identity for ourselves right. that in, informs our values, that informs, makes it possible for us to see the world collectively and act collectively, um, certainly not seamlessly, certainly there's, there's not complete unity. I don't understand what you mean unity. by collectively. I mean, so that, when, so, that, so that we have at least a minimum set of ways that we can construe the world that we have in common, this sort of common set of values, so that we can agree, at least on this much, and actually function as a unit, as a, as a population. And I think there are a lot of mechanisms in society that are designed, whether consciously or unconsciously, to produce that consensus or homogenization, I guess. Things like secondary education, things like the way that mass media uh, functions. For instance, on a Sunday morning talk show like Meet the Press, you've got five or six people, and they set the boundaries of the debate that's going to take place, right? So somebody calling for the end of the war in Afghanistan is not even there. He's not present at the table, right? And somebody calling for some uh, extreme position to the other, at the other end isn't there. And, and, and you couldn't possibly represent every marginal voice. But the show itself produces this sort of fiction that we're all in agreement with at least the people at the table, right? And we can all just sort of identify with one of those voices and we can participate in the debate. But it eliminates all of these other views that aren't, that aren't represented there. Right, so what's the solution? Or d is it better that we limit the debate because therefore we're, we're more unified? And in, in war and peace issues, we can't afford the luxury of democratic debate because our enemy will get us. One of the solutions is to preserve at least a space for academic freedom, where there are at least a set of people. Isn't that, isn't that just convenient? Story. Isn't it just, so we have a free press, right? And the facts are out there, and the, the facts are out there on the internet. If I was plotting to want to control the population, I want the more of the internet, the better. Right. Why? Because the more information that's out there, the more confusion and chaos and ideas, and they, everybody will drown each other out. But I'm talking about a space 
where there are people like you who are a political scientist who is studying this, and to the best of your ability, according to your life, you're trying to get at the actual dynamics of what's going on. And you belong to a community, right? And institutions all over Who's the Who's listening to me? Throughout the world. Nobody's well, listening to us. But well, there, there has to be at some level, some yeah, at some level, some I mean, interface I have no more and popular culture. I have no, I have about as much emphasis on popular culture as. Right, but, it, but at some level, there's some interface between that, that the very existence of that, is, of that sort of institutional academia has an impact. Um, right, but I mean, for example, in all these issues we've been talking about, the facts are known. Right. And academia is part of the fact-collecting, fact right. so are NGOs, so is the press, so is the internet. But no one responds. And it's not unique to the United States. It's not unique to this era in history. Lots of times in history, people know about things, right? The slave owner was not allowed to kill the slave. But they did. But they did, and I, I know a, a few slave owners must have been punished for it. And maybe even a few of them served some time. Well, I'm saying one or two, you know, out of all the states. Out of millions. Okay, right. One or two, All I'm saying is, but most of the people, and everyone knew about it, or the lynchings. For, I don't know how many, 50 years? But I, I think, I think Everybody not only knew about it, th a lot of people were there. I'm sorry? That's how postcards were invented. Like lynching was a picnic for the whole town to come out and watch somebody burn each other. I think when people in the North started really caring about what was really going on, I think it was this, the, the social movements in the South. They, well, people, people started to. People in the South as well. No, but I, I think that was much more important. The North, holier than thou, but they didn't lift a finger. I mean, they had slavery in the North, too. Right, but they stopped sooner, too. I, I think it, when people get to a point where they're just fed up, you know. Yeah, but that's the point. They, Americans, they, they Americans are too well fed. Absolutely. And. You know, to some extent, when they're not well fed, then they got to worry about feeding themselves. Right, so yeah. I don't know which is le which is harder to, to overcome, a full stomach or an empty stomach. <laughs> well, I I mean, we, most of us are not starving, but even unemployed people mostly can get food. But you know, right the last two or three years, I would say, it's hard to get much attention on international issues because you got 10% of the workforce out of work which is a large number. All right, to conclude, I think you know, it's just the, the point of this discussion is to think critically about a worldwide trend which has not happened in the United States, which is truth commissions, um, a trend that has affected the United States only obliquely in that we've had some Senate resolutions, but not a formal apology for slavery. Um, we've had an apology to the Japanese Americans who had their property taken from them and put in camps but they're a relatively small number who accepted a really small reparation. That is less than a million people getting 20,000 apiece, and many of them lost a lot more than 20,000 in the current dollars uh, that was confiscated and never, never paid back. Uh, but not the Native Americans, not the slaves, and not any of the foreign victims of American atrocities either. And the trend towards apologizing is a positive sign, I think, 
even though the typical reaction in America is, oh, we have nothing to apologize for. But the other point is, if you apologize, that doesn't necessarily solve anything. Not that penitence, true penitence, that, would, that apology might reflect, but you need the kind of other actions to do something about it. And the problem is, it's not clear what, what are you going to do when someone's already been killed? You can pay people blood money. You can apologize. But you can't bring the person back to life. The United States never apologized to Vietnam. And maybe we have got nothing to apologize for. But a million people died. It is said that a million people have died in Iraq as a result of a war we started. Maybe it's not that high. For, for sure, 150,000 have died because they've counted the bodies. Uh, but the body count doesn't change. What should we do about it? Should we apologize? Should we admit that it was our fault? Or that's just what happens when you start a war, and that war was a just war because we started that war? All right, thanks very much, and I'll look forward to our last class. Not because it's the last, but because we still have some time together yeah. on Thursday.